Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Enneagram of Essence. I am so excited about each episode in this season. My guests have poured out their hearts in telling their stories and every episode is amazing. This time around, you'll receive a bonus teaching on the passion and fixation within each type's ego, as well as learning about the virtues and holy ideas of each type to give you a fuller picture of what is happening in the type from a more liberated state. Looking at these elements of the personality give us hope that we can embark on an inner journey to find our way back home to our true selves, to our essence, which is inherently good and can never be tainted. Each episode starts with a short guided meditation and ends with a reflection on a poem you are invited to join in with us on both of these spiritual practices as a way to bring some more presence into your day. Thank you so, so much for joining me. All the freedom we seek is internal And the love that we need is everywhere And the light we receive season two off with a bang with my conversation with Phil Gavin Green, an enthusiastic type eight. Phil lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with his wife, Luna, attempting to keep track of their young adult children, their pet chicken, and what's for dinner. He works as a co-pastor at Edgecombe Presbyterian Church and as a guide and faculty member for the Enneagram Prison Project. Phil's favorite things are trees, a good fantasy book, and deep inner freedom for everyone, everywhere. All right. Hi, Phil. Welcome. Hello, Chelsea. Good to be here. Thank you. We're going to start with just a really brief centering practice to contact presence and really fully arrive. So let's settle in. Settle into our bodies. And just like a glass filled with dirt and sand that has been shaken up and it's cloudy and murky, when it sits still, that all filters down towards the bottom and becomes clear. So that's almost what's happening here as we come into stillness and focus on our breath and go inward. There's a settling energy that can happen. We just allow it to happen. Taking a few deep breaths. Feeling the belly move in and out. Allowing this to be a calming moment relaxation, releasing of any tension that might be in the body or any emotional tension. Letting it all go just for now. Allowing the heart to open to whatever degree it feels safe to do so. Feeling a receptiveness in the heart. Expansive quality. And noticing if there's anything else there as well. And then allowing the same thing with the mind. There's nothing to figure out right now. Being here in the silence. Steeping in presence. We'll close by feeling our feet on the ground. Support of earth 
and eyes were closed, we'll open them and enter into our conversation. So Phil, I want to start by just laying a bit of groundwork um, with an explanation of what's going on here in type eight. So what is the personality up to? <laughs> in the first season of the podcast, I talked about essence qualities, and I think it's helpful to just briefly mention them again, that here at type eight, the essence qualities are strength and aliveness and immediacy. And when we lose contact with that, when we lose contact with presence, then the whole personality is like starts fighting to gain that back. And so what happens emotionally in the heart in type eight is there's uh, this thing that's called lust, which is a funny word <laughs> to describe this sense of constantly pushing against life, like a forcing to try to force myself back into that sense of aliveness and intensity, which makes sense. Like that's a very innocent move, <laughs> but the error that the ego makes again and again is that that's never going to work. <laughs> what actually works to come back into life force and aliveness is relaxing. And, and the pushing actually puts up these walls and strengthens the defenses, which blocks out the life force. And so it's a, it's a trap. And the other thing that happens is the mind gets um, fixated in a particular way. And one word that's used to describe this at point eight is objectification. And this is um, the sense that when I lose contact with that aliveness within everything, it starts to feel like everything is dying or dead. And therefore it's just things. I'm surrounded by things. I am a thing. Other people and creatures are things. And therefore there's a, uh, this feeling of disconnect and separation. I'm an object, you're an object. Then this can deteriorate into justifying, um, you know, using these objects <laughs> to get what I, to get what I want, you know, to, to follow my own agenda. And that includes objectifying myself through pushing myself way too hard, using myself as, you know, a machine, a tool through overworking and things like that. So there can be some, some self-abuse that, that happens here at type eight. It's really easy to slide into that. But it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> there, there is a way out. And you, as you know, we, we talk about this so much in the Enneagram world that the way out is through presence, through contacting the immediacy of the moment of our, you know, really feeling what's going on in our bodies, what's going on in our hearts, what's happening in our minds. And through practicing this, over time, again and again and again, accumulating moments of presence, there is the possibility of the virtue of the type arising in the heart. So this is a heart quality that at point eight gets named innocence, which is really interesting. And um, I think for a lot of us, maybe especially eights, but probably all people have a little bit of an aversion to that word or a suspicion of that word, because it sounds like weakness or naivety or, um, you know, just going back to the helplessness of a child, but that's really not what it is. It's not weakness at all. It's this seeing everything as new with fresh eyes like like a child does where you know everything is exciting and there's a sense of wonder in the mix and innocence is also the heart that is willing to be affected it's a heart that is sensitive that is being touched by life the walls around the heart know when to come down 
instead of constantly being defended, there is this strength in vulnerability that is possible to to really become a you know a heart a heart centered sensitive being. And the other thing that happens through connection with presence is this quality in the mind that gets called the holy idea. And the holy idea for type eight is holy truth, which is awesome because eights love honesty. (laughs) But this isn't about telling the truth. It's about experiencing the truth of reality. So when we're actually present fully, there are these moments that break through our normal consciousness, our distracted, fixated consciousness, and we experience reality in a non-dual way. And here with holy truth, the non-duality is like in its most pure form, we experience everything that is as one and realize that there is no separation between me and you. (laughs) I'm not a thing anymore. We're all a part of the same thing, (laughs) the same substance, the same being, the same life force. And the substance is being itself. And that feels like real power. (laughs) There's There's a real strength in that, in that state of mind. So in that space, then, you know, the mind can open up to experience feeling a part of all of reality, this kind of ever-changing flow of the universe that is all one. So I'll pause there. And that's a very quick (laughs) overview of some very complex teachings. But I'll just pause and, and check in with you, Phil about where, how that lands with you. And, you know, if there's anything you would add or anything that stands out or how it affects you, just whatever's coming up in the moment is fine. Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. And the first thing I have to say is thank you. Uh, It it is of course complex to talk through an Enneagram type, but it's that whole teaching really, really, touched me, even with its simplicity, it kind of speaks to my desire for holy truth is in some ways, I'm like, let's just cut to the heart of it. And I felt like um, that that teaching cut to the heart of it. So there are a few things that stand out for me. One is when you said the heart, when I as an eight get to this grounded present place and find this innocence within that my heart is willing to be affected. And right away, I kind of choked up a little bit when you said that. And I, I realized it's, it's just one of the core mm, t- tensions or realities in me that I, I want to affect and impact the world. And that's actually the energy that I'm coming out of like 87% of the time. But there is that other 13%, and it's a big 13% of like, oh, that actually, whenever I am trying to impact the world, I want to be affected by it. Hmm. Um, And that's like what I really, really want. And I've developed this strategy of putting out energy into the world, but almost in that like type two way of like, I, I love in order to get love. Like in some ways I am trying to affect the world in order to be affected by it. And I, I, I forget that. And so I, I liked that reminder. And that's completely connected to what you, you said so well, is that my ego has really convinced me that we're all separate. And it sure looks like it, right? Because you're over there and I'm right here. And, and we're not one, I, I know where you live and it's, you know, four miles that way. It's, you know, it's not right here. And uh, my daughter's on a college tour in St. Cloud today. She's not here with me. And that's just how the world looks. I'm here, others are over there. And so 
to walk through the veil of my personality into this truth that I know is even deeper, that we are all one, um, is so powerful. And I can, I can see at this moment, just to give a teaser for later, why I identified as a type nine at first, because I have such a deep hunger for that kind of unity and belonging that, that are the essential qualities of the type nine. And it's right next, you know, I think us, us belly body types do kind of hold this special energy, but um, my strategies for not feeling it are all type eight. But in some ways, my deepest desire are that oneness. And so I, I, I really do appreciate that invitation into that deepest part of who I am. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. So let's, let's go back and uh, reminisce a little bit about younger Phil, <laughs> however far back you want to go. And I'm curious about, you know, in hindsight, how do you see how your personality was showing up, you know, for better or worse? And specifically, you know, how, how was it creating struggles or suffering for, for you and other people around you as well? Yeah. Here's, here's the first thing I would say. The Enneagram, more than anything else I've done, and I've done counseling, I've done storytelling seminars where you do life review work, and, you know, what do you remember from your first five years and your second five years and 10 to 15, and you know, on and on, and those kind of reviews, and it is the Enneagram more than anything else that has invited me back to the truth of my childhood, and I've remembered stories about myself that I, I wasn't one of those people who said I I can't remember my childhood at all, but I clearly whitewashed it. Or as my wife said to me when I started to do more serious Enneagram work and then started to talk about my childhood, she said, I, I didn't think you had a childhood. Like she, she just had never heard me. I just didn't talk about it at all. It was like a non-issue. You know, it was like I was born a powerful adult, you know, um, and at least that's the story I carried with myself. And when I started to strip down some of the layers of my personality and then look back, not just to remember, but look back thinking about myself as a little type eight, all of a sudden things started to come to me. Like some of the earliest stories I've been told about myself is I'm the youngest of three children, two older sisters. And when my parents would go, um, starting after raising kids for 10 years to go on a date when I was two, three years old, I would cry the entire time they were gone. So that definitely kind of does not fit my image of myself, um, but I can could find the truth of that within myself, that then I was not a big, strong eight. <laughs> I, I was a little needy eight, um, and I did not have my parents around, and I wanted them. And so that story that I can tell myself as an eight that people just aren't there to nurture me or protect me in the way that I need, um, I think was starting to form there as a little late. And my parents were great parents. They were just going out of date, like God bless them for going out of date, but I needed them there and they weren't there. Yeah. So that one of the next memories I can remember and I really remember this as being on the playground of my elementary school when I was in kindergarten and first grade and having that same sense that this is not like, say, I'm not going to get the protection or nurture here I, I need on this playground. And so I would pretend to be Godzilla. I would like literally think of myself as covered in green scales and being this, you know, walking upright monster who could stomp and blow fire and um, for anything that threatened me. And so all by myself and all you'd see is a little kid walking around the playground is that's what that looked like. But in my mind, I had kind of put on my, what I now think of as my type eight Godzilla suit. And I am both, instead of, I can affect the world, I can do the stomping and I can do the flame breath. I can do a lot of affecting, but I am not affected. I am armored 
against the world. And so that, you know, I've heard people say we form our personalities by the time we're six years old. And it kind of seemed like, oh, that almost seems impossible. And then I remembered the Godzilla suit. And I'm like, there, that's, that's really all I didn't need to figure out. You know, I couldn't teach type eight <laughs> at the time, but I figured out what I needed to do to protect myself. Um, so that's really an image way back that that just comes to me anytime I'm really feeling in my personality. I'm like, oh, do I want to put on the Godzilla suit? Do I need to put on the Godzilla suit? Do I have other choices here? Apparently, when I was six, I did not feel like I did. Mm -hmm. What do you think, as that little kid on the playground, what do you think he was missing out on by wearing that Godzilla suit? Yeah, I mean, games, fun, connection, mm -hmm. um, just being another, I mean, I think I started a pretty powerful story that it's me against the world. It's me against the world, but sometimes I could also come to someone's rescue who was hurting or being, you know, I could also be the protector of the weak at that point. And again, another gift, a, a possible thing I could give to the world, but the, the loneliness um, and the separation. So the loss of you know, I was choosing kind of the ultimate autonomy of being kind of an all-powerful beast over part and for security at the loss of connection. I mean, it's really, it's almost like a mathematical formula at that point, you know, this plus this does not equal this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. So here's another thing I did not remember until my kids started going through elementary school and then middle school and high school is that the, the very few times my own kids got in any trouble and would like go to the principal's office and I would get a call and go in and have a conversation with my kids. I all of a sudden realized I was in the principal's office a lot. <laughs> like. Um, and I didn't do anything, you know, I was not like painting graffiti all over the school at night, you know, I wasn't doing anything. I was, if I saw weakness, or inefficiency, or if I saw someone in the classroom not being treated right, it was just very clear, I could not keep my mouth shut. And so I would just speak, if I didn't like something, I said it, and I thought I was being helpful. And occasionally maybe teachers found it helpful, but just as often they were finding it disruptive or sassing or, or too much or, or something. And so when that would happen and I could, I can easily imagine I would dig in my heels if the teacher would ask me to be quiet or something. And so sometimes you off to the principal, I would go. So my parents were real good about it. You know, like I said, I never was doing anything that really caused damage beyond the classroom peacefulness. Um, but I think my, my kind of that eight desire for, I mean, maybe control, but that for autonomy and for protection, and I, I just couldn't hold it in. It would just leak out all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I used to work in kindergarten classrooms. And after I learned the Enneagram, it was so helpful to understand my students and especially the eights, because there were so many times when they could have been so misunderstood and just sent into a timeout or sent to the principal's office. But in Dead. I once I figured out like oh this is a little eight like I could just you know kind of ask them what's going on for them and have a conversation about it or help them do some deep breathing or whatever was intuitive that was needed in the moment because oftentimes they were getting sent to the principal's office because they were literally just bouncing off the walls and like breaking things without trying to <laughs> but it was it was just kind of like chaos <laughs> just a little ball of energy so yeah yep and that same little phil thinking about it now was staying after school to talk to those teachers so that goes back to your earlier question of 
again, what I'm really looking for is a kind of connection. And, and even in this case, the old, you know, like any kind of attention is good attention. I suspect I kind of liked going to the principal's office. Oh, like I can actually talk to an adult who might listen to me. Like that's, it, it didn't, I, I was never feeling very punished. You know, Shane doesn't really work very well on either eights or fives, to be honest, but, but eights. Um, and so, I mean, I think it was like you said, if you can, if a teacher could see me and just be there with me for, then my energy would come right down. If it turns into a battle of wills, I'm just going to keep pushing the energy up and up and up until I win or something different happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So how did this Godzilla suit carry out into your more like teenage or adult years as you went forward? Yeah, what I'm, so this isn't directly Godzilla suit, but what I'm thinking now is about lust. And I'm thinking uh, two things about it. When you said it, and you said something like, um, it's a pushing against life or against reality. And I think that's like half true, but I think what's even deeper true is just like, as we usually use the word lust, I mean, lust for life or sexual lust, it's actually just a deep hunger for life. But if uncontained does create a certain amount of problems. And so we'll, and in an eight, we'll maybe push right through those problems. And so there you get the pushing against reality. But really, it's just a deep hunger for life. You know, these little kindergarten um, eights or me on the playground. Like um, I, I didn't just sit on the edge of the playground and pout. You know, I, I'm Godzilla, like I'm, I'm going to be in the middle of this, even if I'm not feeling the connection I want. And so I think that just really defined me. I would just jump into almost anything, whether it be a school musical or sports, um, even relationships. I mean, again, I, I wanted connection. So I would just put myself out in the class. Again, I just when I can be kind of honest about myself, thinking about myself in sixth, seventh, eighth, but actually then all the way through my academics. I, I would even often sit in the back because I knew my energy was so big that I could like take the whole classroom. Like the teacher would be in front and then I could be in back. And like, and I think sometimes it turned into a battle of wills. I think some teachers appreciated the energy I brought, but I'm asking questions all the time. I'm bringing my, what do you think about this? Or, oh, I see a problem in what you just like, just all the time, just like pouring out of me. And so, uh, you know, the cost of that is sometimes it's nice to just like sit back and learn. Sometimes it's nice to give other people in the class space to, you know, say things. I, I can learn things from other people. But it's also a beautiful energy to have this lust for life and and to live into it with fullness and so i, I mean i i i feel like to this day I, like i'm living my life and, and that's that's a good feeling mm -hmm. so how long ago was it that you discovered the enneagram like how old were you let's see so i discovered the enneagram in the late 1990s so i went to college and then i took some time off um, I actually got married right out of college and then two and a half years later got divorced. So that we should maybe come back there because it was the first kind of big like wall that I hit in my life where my like lust for life did not work. Mm -hmm. um, but then went to seminary and eventually was becoming a Presbyterian pastor and met some friends where um, my second wife, who I'm still married to, um, uh, she got a call as a pastor in Portland, Oregon. And so then I moved to Portland, Oregon, and several friends there in introduced us to the Enneagram. And I immediately took to it. I thought it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, typed myself as a nine. And I think as a new pastor, as this 
type eight, like, I am about unity and wholeness and like, yes, I am. And um, so the energy all wrong. Yeah, I'm so not a nine energy. Um, and, but I also like, I don't really actually like conflict. I like it when we all get along and are, you know, rowing the boat in the same direction. That's where I feel better. No, I don't like conflict. Yes, I like peace and unity. Let's go. Um, so it all made very good sense to me. And I was did not have the self-awareness to sort of see the parts that did not fit at all. Um, but spent about 10 years then as, as a nine and probably partly because of that, didn't do real deep work. Um, was doing a conference 10 years later. So around 2009, 2010 and met a co-presenter. And after about 30 seconds, she said, do you know the Enneagram? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, you're an eight, right? I'm like, no, I'm a nine. She said, oh, I'm an eight. And I would swear, you just like took over the energy of this entire room as soon as you came in. And I would swear you were an eight. So I asked her to go to lunch and tell me more. She did. And she told me more and it got me to go back. And I think I reread the type eight chapter in the wisdom of the Enneagram. And it was like a, you know, punch between the eyes. All of a sudden I could see it. I could see it everywhere. Um, and so that really started my second journey with the Enneagram, which got, you know, much deeper, much quicker, started to do my real work. I had kids at that point. And so the, the kind of rage that was coming up, having children in my life, um, all of a sudden I could have some language for that and some ways to, to be honest with myself about that. Eventually went to Enneagram Institute training one, and then a little bit later training with the Enneagram Prison Project, and here I am. Here you are, yeah, off and running with it. Wow. Do you think there was any benefit to you in thinking that you were a nine for ten years? Yeah, I I was apparently not ready to see myself as an eight. You know, I was I. I think it was the on-ramp that I apparently needed. Mm. So I, I do think that everything happens for a reason. And so I think it gave me a way to articulate some things about myself that I did not have articulation for. Even what we started this conversation with, that, oh, like, we're not separate, but we're one. Like, I, I didn't even have language for that before. I think my Ego was mostly running the show, hungry for this oneness, but mostly letting me see separateness and thinking I have to use all my big energy to try to overcome this reality itself, which is separateness. And to be able to rest into the unity, the being, the wholeness of type nine, like, gave my soul a little breather like oh like that's that's what's really true and i know that to be true it was my i mean i would i would say that literally my avenue into type eight was through the essential qualities of the type nine into the the holy truth of type eight and then from there i could see Oh, my strategies of doing this oneness, this lust, this desire for oneness that I have is actually through the strategies of type eight, which so often actually bring me in the exact opposite direction of oneness and, and unity. It's like, it's leading to more and more conflict in my life and I've gotten divorced and I'm making people angry with me and I'm in meetings, my energy is getting so big and I'm doing good things in the world, but I'm alienating people. Like what, what's happening? Something's not working for this oneness and unity that I want. And so then after banging my head against that for 10 years, I was ready to say, oh, okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'd hit a new bottom. I would just say I was more ready to be honest about the whole of me at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to return to the 
story about your divorce? Is there anything you want to say about that? So up, up until up until that marriage was just not working, pretty much my energy took me a long ways. I mean, some friendships work better than others, of course, some situations, but mostly, you know, in high school and starring in school musicals and I was student body president my senior year and going to the college I wanted and doing well in college and I, I mean in a certain you know in a very eight-way success meant being successful in the world but also like oh challenges and meeting challenges and overcoming challenges and I just felt like boy I can do almost anything so let's go and um, got got married and you know, made vows, this is for life, and I meant them, and off we went, and then two years in, I'm just miserable, and I'm getting depressed, and again, putting my full energy into it, I'm not, I'm not running away, going to couples counseling, looking for help, getting advice, and none of it's working, and so, like, this, this um, almost invincibility story, that the um, Godzilla suit, you know, I, I mean, who, who can stand in my way, put up a wall, I'll bash through it, um, you know, put an ocean in the way, I'll walk through it or swim through it. Like there's, there's really, I can survive atomic bombs, you know, like there's all, that really does, it was not that well thought out, but I really think I had kind of a story of, of kind of invincibility was part of the, the mimic of my essential qualities that my ego was selling to me. And when it became clear that that relationship was ending, that invincibility cracked in, in a powerful way. And so the, the amount of vulnerability, the, the sense of weakness and failure, um, the just sadness, why you don't really need to feel sad when you're conquering life and you just kind of keep keep going and so the, the sadness i really got depressed for a while and so while that was maybe one of the hardest things that's ever happened to me it was also this beautiful gift uh, it really did crack my heart open it really did invite me to a kind of Instead of this is a problem to solve, it became what does the question for myself became, okay, what would it take to actually full heartedly be here for my life? And what if everything is not a problem to solve? And it's actually just life to live. And so with, without that divorce, I think I would have something else pretty harsh would have needed to happen to kind of crack into my life. But it was clearly a key moment. Quite shortly after that, I met Julie, now Luna, my, my current wife, who, who was, you know, a type four heart type who was like ready to receive my heart in this, in this open place. And, and I think the combination of that divorce and meeting Luna was just a major turning point. And it had nothing to do, it had everything to do with the Enneagram because the Enneagram helps you understand it, but I didn't know the Enneagram at all at the time. But I, I can see how I had to kind of unzip the Godzilla suit and let my heart enter the equation. Yeah. In some ways for the, not the first time as in my heart was 100% offline before that, but with the kind of awareness and intentionality, that was the moment. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship with the Godzilla suit now? Like, do you still keep it around? That's a good question. Let me actually check in with myself about that. Here's, here's how I would talk about it, um, I think. So I'm, I'm even conjecturing with myself here of saying that now it's, it's about freedom. And every once in a while, I think I, and I think this is true of other people too, but sometimes I, I need some extra protection 
And so just kind of like having it there to kind of duck into and, and feeling a little like uh, to just withdraw from the world, almost kind of like taking my line to type five and, and withdrawing. And when you can't physically withdraw to kind of just withdraw into my Godzilla suit and just kind of feel safe for a moment, feels like um, a not too bad use of, of that Godzilla suit. And then, I mean, when the rage comes up, it's also tempting to, to put on that suit to kind of like go into the world. Um, but more and more and more, I would say the freedom to say, oh, no, actually, the way I want to affect the world and be affected by it is to just be here, open, vulnerable. E even coming into this conversation today was, I would say, a noteworthy, not the first time ever, but I, I thought, oh, this is going to get vulnerable like almost guaranteed. It's just the whole setup is, is to kind of be vulnerable and that'll be awesome. Like that will really be fun. And so that's telling me that the, the appeal and the gifts in my life of connection, of vulnerability, of innocence, um, of, of aliveness, that lets my head and my heart and my body be present are, are outweighing the appeal of the Godzilla suit. Mm -hmm. Are there any specific, you know, experiences or people or moments that, that you're able to connect with this transition that, you know, we've, we've talked about like how it was before and how it was now, but like, there must have been a bunch of stuff that happened in between <laughs> that that helped you can wake up to your personality more and more on the way and learn how to work with it. What were some of those turning points or helpful practices or, or tools along the way? Yeah, so one of them is, and I'll keep this story short, but I've mentioned it before, but having children. And having children caused more rage to come up in me than I'd ever thought, especially my firstborn. And it's all about autonomy. So, you know, body types, our, our deepest need is for autonomy. And I, I maybe didn't even completely understand that until I had my first child. And my first child just came into my life and you can't get away from them. You know, they're like everywhere. And so affecting my sleep, just affecting all the little ways I had built my life to feel good and feel safe just came in. And with this, with this cute, you know, open-hearted, needy, needing protection. So it like just, it hit all my deepest stuff of wanting to care for and love this little child and also just feeling rage at the way he was um, completely messing up my life. And so that, that place where, you know, after the divorce, getting remarried, now having children, choosing to have children, wanting to have children, and now like, okay, want children, here, here they are. Do you want to be in touch with your heart? Do you want to be connected to this child? And like, yes, and, and so forcing me to take a little bit, not a little bit, forcing me to take like a complete look at myself. Okay. I'm like all straightforward. All right. Just give it to me straight. Hey. Um, and so I had to start giving it to myself straight. You say you want this connection to this child and rage. And so how, how do you want to be? Um, and, and can you be honest about your anger and the results it has? And so as my children grew, same thing. And I would find myself, you know, like yelling at one of my kids. I'm a huge man and my little children, you know, like, oh, I could, I could start to create that, um, that observer self. And, oh, here I am yelling at my little four-year-old boy. And like, is this the person I want to be? And when I could do that with compassion and gentleness, it, it started to give me some options that I did not have before. The other thing that happened now four or five years ago is that um, I was introduced to the Enneagram Prison Project. 
And the way that Susan Alessic and the Enneagram Prison Project both taught, re-taught me the Enneagram was through this radical compassion. What if we discover not what's wrong with us, but what's right about us? And so to begin again, even, you know, you could maybe hear the way I'm talking about my kids. I'm trying to be gentle with myself, but I also feel bad for how rageful I was with my kids. But to say, oh, I'm trying to heal my deepest childhood wounds myself. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's what working with people in prison is exactly what they're trying to do. And when we let our egos drive the car, it goes into not very good places. And so can I accept myself? Can I forgive myself? With the next step being actually going into prison, and especially the women of Shakopee prison, many of whom have actually lost their children because of, you know, the way that their ego has played out in their life. And so to start um, getting in touch with this kind of sadness, but to be inspired by these women, instead of giving up on themselves, to do that digging deeper to say, I am worth doing this healing work. And so their stories invited me back into myself and saying, oh, like what, what if I can accept this innocent part of mine? What if I can accept all this energy of mine? Because what I really want is, uh, what do I really want? What I really want is a freedom and peace. And I know that when I'm free, and when I really accept myself and everyone and everything in peace, then, then I have the kinds of connections I want with other people. And it's not coming through that, that beautiful, lusty energy of mine. It's coming instead from that, that deep-hearted presence of mine. And how do I remember that? Well, I, 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 I mostly forget to be honest. But the more I remember it, the more I remember it, if that makes sense. And so when I have these, even just today to say out loud, like, oh, I'm actually looking forward to being vulnerable with Chelsea in this conversation today. Like that's worth noting, like put that way. I've got a whole bunch of vulnerability leads to trickiness. Yeah. I've got a whole like file. Vulnerability leads to beauty and connection and love and connectedness and joy and peace. That is a growing file. And so I try to pay attention, put things in there. I try to breathe. It's so interesting hearing, you know, even after you gain some some more self-awareness and the inner observer that there is still this attempt to fix oneself in the style of our Enneagram type, (laughs) right? It's like, well, I'll just try harder. I'll just do more. I'll just be stronger. And like, I think about myself as a one, when I first discovered the Enneagram, I was like, great, this is a map that's going to show me how to actually be perfect. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) You know, and it's like, there's still those inner motivations early on in the path that that are helpful in some way because they're keeping us on the path and motivated to keep trying and show up again and again and again. And it gets exhausting doing it from that perspective without the element of gentleness and compassion. (sighs) Yes, I would say that that's exactly right. And so that one thing I've said, I'll just say again, is that I think it helps when we do that, because there's almost not another option. There's maybe some very enlightened option where we don't come from those habitual responses, but it's also our best shot at least to get started is to to use the gifts we have. And so like accepting myself for that and and trying to have have as much freedom and gentleness um, as, as I can for myself and others as I do it. The other thing is, though, to notice that my ego is what? Brilliant and pernicious 
like my ego so understands me and my basic desires that it tries to give me exactly what I want. Even like, like connection, peace, freedom, um, wholeness, aliveness, immediacy, like 99% of it. Phil, if you work really hard, you know, it's like you for type one. If you're, if you do this Enneagram stuff really well, you can finally be good. And for me, if I, if I put my full energy into this, um, I can finally really feel alive and connected. And the ego, yeah, the ego gives me so many both sticks and carrots for that, but the ego will never let me rest in my full aliveness, rest in, in the now, uh, rest in my open-hearted innocence. And so it, it is, I was going to say graduate level work, but it doesn't, it has nothing to do with graduate school or academics or smarts. It, it is some deep spiritual acceptance work and say like, oh, I hear you, ego. Thank you. Thank you for like pointing the way. But now I can see you're not actually the guide I need. So I'm going to take this step forward without you or beyond you. And I'm, tr I'm trying to think of like how to make this specific, but uh, pretty much every single time I want to be vulnerable, it feels like I'm going to die. Yes. And so to actually take the step in, in, a, in a situation that doesn't feel as safe as this one, but feels loaded with lots of stakes, I just have to do a lot of internal work to say, no, I want this. I want vulnerability because I want this connection. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me years to those places where the ego says, you end here, Phil. If you go beyond that, there is, you do not know. And what's there is tears, sadness, depression, death, horror. And to take that step that takes immense courage. And anyone who's doing this work, like I said, the women in prison are the folks who have inspired me more than anyone else, but anyone who's doing this work, oh, you have my deep respect because it's terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, it is terrifying. It is, yeah, the, the ego death that we're supposedly working towards is it feels like death and therefore it's very very difficult to get there <laughs> why would anyone run towards death <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah apparently because there is life on the other side yeah yeah hmm. wow well phil this has been awesome thank you so so much and I would love to end with a poem. I picked out this, this poem that I think speaks to the journey of type eight and the eight in all of us. And yeah, the way that we'll do this is I'll read through it once just so we can kind of get the lay of the land, hear what the poem's about, and then I'll read through it a second time with the invitation to allow it to really affect our hearts. And on that second time through, we'll listen for a word or a phrase that stands out to us, and then we can share that. All right. So this poem is called Allow by Dana Falds. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, 
practice becomes simply bearing the truth in the choice to let go of your known way of being the whole world is revealed to your new eyes so i'll read this again we'll listen with our hearts this time there is no controlling life try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado dam a stream and it will create a new channel resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet allow and grace will carry you to higher ground the only safety lies in letting it all in the wild and the weak fear fantasies failure and success when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair practice becomes simply bearing the truth in the choice to let go of your known way of being the whole world is revealed to your new eyes so is there a word or a phrase that popped out for you yeah every line one um what's what is bubbling up for me now though is uh sadness and fear why do you think that stood out to you yeah i think the rest as i said the whole poem really really worked for me that was a, a brilliant choice and i think i'm gonna have to look that up um but if I'm listening with my heart, there's just so many good um, insights and that kind of resounded with the whole of me, but just that, um, I, I think in some, I was gonna say ultimate way, what the whole Godzilla suit and the whole type eight approach to life I take is trying to protect myself from sadness and fear. And what if I, what if I gave up that project of protecting myself and instead allowed? And what a big difference that would make. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think it's this line about the choice to let go of your known way of being. Which, oh. <laughs> It just is so hard. I can I can start each day with that intention and end each day in disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> but but this but then I can res what I've learned is I can respond to that disappointment in a new way. Mm. And I can hold that disappointment with love and welcome that into without going down some kind of spiral into that feeling it's just this bringing compassion to it because that's what's showing up is like yeah okay i'm still disappointed in myself haven't gotten over that yet but i i'm responding to that differently and so in a way that is the choice to let go of my known way of being like maybe my disappointment in myself will never go away and maybe that's okay because mm. I just don't have to pay it any mind. <laughs> like it gets less and less say in the grand scheme of things. So I don't know, that's kind of where, where I went with it. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Phil. This has been really fun. Thank you for asking me, Chelsea. I too, I had a blast. Big shout out to singer-songwriter Lynn O'Brien, who provided our theme music for this podcast. You can find her music online at lynnobrien.love. For more on my work, 
including Enneagram courses, coaching, Enneagram art, and spiritual direction, visit chelseaforbrook.com. Please share this podcast with your friends, and I look forward to having you join us next week for our next epic journey. Until then, may the deep peace of presence be with you.